right, well, good morning. And again, I apologize for, I've been trying so hard to get my voice back, but just hasn't cooperated, all right? So if at some point in today's message, you see my lips moving, but you don't hear anything, Jeremy, you can just, you're just take it over, okay? So I, I do want to say just a quick word about Mother's Day. Um, today, it's obviously, it's a really special day as we honor um, the, our moms, the moms that are in our lives. I can think of, I've said this many times before, and I'll keep saying it because it's true. I can think of no um, greater sanctifying and shaping influences in my life than the three mothers that God has put in my, my life, my, my wife, my mom, and my mother-in-law. Um, and I'm sure for many of you, you could, you could probably say the same thing. Um, we know that being a mother is a tremendous calling. It comes with great joy, but it also requires a tremendous amount of work. So for many, Mother's Day is a very special day. For many, uh, Mother's Day can be a really hard day as well. Um, for some, this can be uh, one of the more difficult Sundays of the year. Um, this topic, this day can be, for some people, a source of great pain, grief, even regret oftentimes. My prayer for you this morning is that regardless of what Mother's Day means to you, whether it's a really special day or if it's a really hard day, is that you would be encouraged by two truths. The first truth is that, again, regardless of what this day means to you, that you would be encouraged by the fact that this church is with you, that this church loves you, and that this church needs you. So as you consider what Mother's Day means to you, remember that. Second truth is that as wonderful of a calling as being a mother is, it is by no means the greatest calling in life. The greatest calling is that you are a follower of Jesus. All right? And that, that is, is an invitation to all of us, regardless of who you are this morning, okay? So um, this morning we have, uh, we have the opportunity to start a new series here at Parkview East. I don't know if you, if you are, uh, have been here before, you know that we just finished up a series going through the I Am series statements in the book of John. Uh, well, now we're starting a series that's called Life Matters, okay? And so what we're doing is we're allowing God to speak to some of the most critical aspects of our life. And this morning, um, I would invite you to take your Bible out and to open to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are going to be reading from Deut Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and read for us. And this morning, our attention, specifically the, the topic of this sermon, is home matters. Home matters. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider this, your word this morning to us, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be able to speak for the next few minutes. Lord, and I pray that your word, Lord, would be very clear. I pray you would, you would write it on our hearts, Lord, these truths which we believe to be absolutely eternal. Lord, I pray that they would shape us as a people. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, in an attempt to bring some understanding as to exactly how times change and the current moment that we are in, Walter Truett Anderson tells a story of three umpires. Perhaps you've heard the story before, but three umpires who are having a conversation. A conversation about how they call balls and how they call strikes. There is a pre-modern umpire. There is a modern umpire, and there's a post-modern umpire. The pre-modern umpire claim there are balls and there are strikes, and I call them simply the way that they are. The modern umpire asserted, well, there's balls and there's strikes, and I call them as I see them. And the post-modern umpire said, no, 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 see, there aren't anything until I call them, right? For the pre-modern mind... They were quick to embrace the supernatural, held to the belief of the divine, faith in God or gods. It was not at odds with science or with reason. The divine ordered the universe. This was assumed. There were such things as objective values, absolute principles, and transcendent reality. There are balls and there are strikes, and I call them the way that they are. For the modern mind, reason trumped revelation. In fact, revelation would not reveal any objective truth existed. Rather, humanism, science, and technology would promise a better life. Truth is still out there, yet it is up to us to discover it, to identify it, to see where it is. There are balls and there are strikes, and I call them as I see them. For the postmodern mind, the reality in which we live today, reality was all relative. It is what happens to be constructed in the mind through the imagination of individuals and communities. No universals, no meta narratives, no objective truth. Experience replaces truth. Emotion above reason. In the postmodern world, we see the unfortunate divorce of fact value. There aren't balls and strikes until I call them. It's amazing when you look back at history to see how times have changed. And they certainly have changed. And as a church, as we consider, not just a church, but the church, as we consider how we navigate the changing times, we have a couple of options before us. First option, as we consider our current cultural moment, is we can cower in fear, right? We can sense the pressure of the changing cultural climate, 
increased skepticism, the air of confusion that is all around us, and we can be terrified. The image that comes to mind is a 10-year-old standing in the batter's box while a rolled-ish chaplain, Chapman, hurls 100-mile-an-hour pitches his way. You can imagine a 10-year-old standing there facing 100-mile-an-hour pitches. The way he holds the bat, that could be a way that we hold this book, terrified. Another option would be that we simply cave to the cultural pressures around us. Sensing the times are changing, we should too be a changing people. Free to adjust the values or the teachings that reflect the world around us, right? The things that we talk about, that we hold to in here, well, it's not such a bad thing to let them bend and turn so that they, we slowly embrace the values of the world around us. We could cave to cultural pressures. Or there's a third option. We can commit to standing on and passing along this very book. The Christian understanding is that there is a truth. And it is not based on experience. Rather, this truth which transcends cultures and transcends time is based on revelation. And our job as a people is the preservation of that truth. And if we don't preserve it, folks, well, then I would say we are not who we claim to be. I'm hoping it's, clo- it's clear this morning which path as a church we are choosing to follow, right? Because if we are a people of God, then we really only have one option. Now, the main point of this passage this morning is that if we have any hope in preserving the faith that God has called us to, Unless we prioritize this book, it will not happen. If, unless we prioritize the passing of these words, of God's words himself, from one generation to the next, there will be no preservation of our faith. We talk about changing times. Well, the book of Deuteronomy certainly reflects a critical moment in the life of the people of Israel. Israel's nation was changing who they were as a people was changing. This was a critical moment in their history. In many ways, this whole book, Deuteronomy, serves as Moses' parting words to God's favored people. He was raised up as a leader of their nation, a deliverer, right? God would use him ultimately to lead the children of God from the hand of Pharaoh, to, to take God's word, his commandments, and communicate them to God's people that they might govern and shape life in the community of God's people. He would use Moses to lead God's people wandering throughout the desert for some 40 years. But now, the book of Deuteronomy, things are about to change. Things are about to change. God's people gather here in the valley of Moab, on the cusp of stepping into the promised land, the land that God had promised them years before, they stand there on the verge of stepping into God's faithful deliverance of his promised land. And Moses, knowing that he will not accompany them into Canaan, takes the opportunity ultimately to preach three sermons, stands before his people there in the valley of Moab, and declares these words. The whole book of Deuteronomy essentially is three sermons that Moses preached. These words were critical to God's people. And they're critical. They were critical then and they're critical now. If you were to consider, let's say, the New Testament and examine Jesus' words, Jesus himself quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. 
It proved useful to Jesus throughout his life and his ministry. For example, when he was tempted in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, perhaps you remember the story, he responded to each of the three temptations by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. This book was so useful to him. In fact, Moses' charge to these people was the same charge that it is to us this morning. That if you have any ambition of leaving a legacy or preserving a faith for a people, it will require biblical fidelity. This morning as we fly over this text, and it is a beautiful, a rich text. I mean, if you do not, if you're not familiar with chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, I would, I would charge you to familiarize yourself with the whole chapter. It is absolutely critical to understanding who God is and what he expects from God's people. But as we fly over this, that is exactly what our charge is. Is how do we take this book... And how do we successfully pass it along to God's people from one generation to the next? And if you think about what we are trying to do as a church, it comes down to just that. We are standing on this book and we are passing it on to the next generation. If we don't do that, there will be no preservation of our faith. Okay? This book is absolutely critical. So the question comes this morning, how do we do it? Well, there's three things I want to just show real quick. I believe the text shows us three things that will give us some insight into how we can do this. Exactly what's being asked of us and how we can do it. Command, content, and context. Those are the three points this morning. Command, content, and context. And just so you know, the way we do children's ministry here at Parkview is a little different. So all of our kids this morning are in here. All right, And so we love the fact that kids get to sit here on a Sunday morning and get to see mom, dad, um, see friends, adults who love them, who care for them, worshiping Jesus, learning from Jesus, sitting at his feet. This is great for us. So there might be some distractions. There is food back there, so there might be some additional distractions. But guess what? That's okay. All right? It's okay. My voice is a distraction. It's okay. All right. So first is the command. What is the command that we see in the text before us? Now, there's actually, if you were to go through the book of or the, the chapter six of Deuteronomy, you would see that there are many imperatives throughout this particular chapter. But for today's purposes, I want to focus primarily on just one of them. And it gets to the very heart of what Moses is trying to accomplish, what he's doing here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We see it kind of emerge in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment. If you look at verse 1, this is the commandment the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Moses is doing what he can to ensure that as God's people step into God's promised land, they will keep God's word. Deuteronomy is Moses summarizing the history of God's people and, and elaborating on the law that God has given his people. If you were to go through verses chapter 12 through 26 of the book, you would see that they specifically relate to the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses to give his people. I can only imagine after spending 40-some years wandering in the wilderness with these people, constantly turning aside to idolatry, that Moses had some concerns, right? He knew he couldn't go in there with them. He knew they were going in there by themselves, but he knew they were going in there with this book. And his concern was that they would keep God's word. So he stands before them, and he teaches God's word. But he also instructs God's people to do the same thing. Look at verse 7, 6 and 7. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. 
you shall teach them diligently to your children. So the command of Moses is simple. Follow my lead. Give your lives to teaching this word. Do it diligently. This was Moses' passion, his calling as he cares for God's people, as he prepares God's people for what lies ahead. Place this word at the very center of your life. Teach God's word. What was the aim of this teaching? What did he want to see accomplished with this teaching? Look at verse 1 again. That you may do them, the God's laws, his commands, in the land to which you are going over. The aim of Moses' teaching is not just that they learn God's commands. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just they learn that they absorb what God has said. It's that they do them. See that in verse 1. That you may do them in the land. In these first two verses, we are given a simple yet beautiful definition of what Christian education, Christian discipleship essentially is. It is both thinking and acting biblically. It's not just that you learn and know these commandments. It is that, but it's also that you receive them and that you practice them. That these commandments shape and govern the way you live the steps that you take in life, the relationships that you build, how you deal with your finances, how you deal with your employees or your employers, how you operate in the neighborhood. These are to govern your life, not just that you absorb them in your head, but they work themselves out in your life. This is what our aim is as a church. For, for example, one of the reasons we gather here on Sunday morning is not just for the transmission of information, right? But what we want to see is the transformation of our lives, right? The church is a community of believers striving for holy obedience to God. And this shapes what we do as a people, right? And there's a reason why we all, why we all come together and for, you know, I don't know how long this morning, but for a good chunk of our time together, we open up God's word. And my job as a preacher is to stay in God's word, is to constantly be pointing you in God's word. And if I'm not doing that, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not preaching, right? If we think of community life, there's a reason why we want you to gather in groups outside of what happens on Sunday mornings. In small groups of people opening up God's word. Not just having tea or coffee or laughing and having fun. But learning specifically what God's word says. And how you, as a parent or as a student, as a brother or a sister, can apply it to your life and be obedient to it. If we think about children, our aim in children's ministry, the spot, it's the exact same thing. The absorption of God's word into our minds that it might transform our lives. We are to be obedient to this word. Not just know it, right? Now, as we think, it's so critical that we understand that oftentimes the church historically has gotten this twisted, where this obedience comes from. It's critical that we remember that grace comes first. If you were to flip over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 4, I just want to read a couple of verses there. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 32. I'm going to read 32 through, uh, we'll just see a few verses here. For ask now of the days that are past, 
which were before you since the day that God created man on earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God. There was no other besides him. Out of the heaven, out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire, and you hear his great words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance. As it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other God. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Do you see what Moses is telling him? Look at all that God has done for you. Look at the grace that he has shown you. Of all the people on the face of the earth, God chose you. Folks, Grace upon grace upon grace. And our response, the appropriate, the biblical response to that lavish grace that he extends to us, it's obedience. Oftentimes we get those two things twisted, right? We think our obedience brings about God's grace. That's not what the Bible says, right? And praise God it doesn't say that. Because if it did, we would be up here sweating bullets, right? I just got to do more, do better, do more, do better. God pours out his grace to us. And our response is obedience. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright, godly lives in the present age, right? Obedience is our response to God's grace. Don't get it twisted. That's the command. What's the content of the command? Verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What's the content, the substance? What is it that should be taught specifically? Just point out three things real quick. First of all, the nature of God. As we consider how we are to instruct the next generation, we must instruct them and who God is. Now this verse, if you look at verse 4, is a very famous verse. It's the basic confession of Judaism, and it serves as the centerpiece for their morning and their evening prayers. It's called the Shema. The Shema expresses in so few words the most important ideas of what it means, the absolute essential reality of what it means to be a Jew. That they are a people who serve ultimately one God. Hear, O Israel, Shema word, the word Shema simply means to hear that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Now, if you were to remove yourself from today and put yourself back into the original hearers of this text, this would be, this would offer, this truth, this reality would offer to you a tremendous, a tremendous amount of security. Remember that the Israelites lived in a polytheistic world. Unlike their neighboring nations, the Israelites could have a sense of security, right? Because the gods of the ancient Near East rarely thought of acting in harmony. Each god was unpredictable and morally capricious. So a pagan worshiper could never be sure that his loyalty to one god would serve to protect him from the shifting wrath of another. So the Shema lifted them out of this insecurity, since they had to deal with only one God, who we believe to be and know an unchanging God, who dealt with them by a revealed, consistent, righteous standard. Imagine the security that this would bring to them as they were stepping into a land where they feared that there were other gods, right? That may be tribal, associated with their tribes, that they may have to appease, that could be shifting and warring against them. Their God was one God, the true God. Imagine the security this brought for them. And it should bring for us today as the same is true for us today. But it also brings for us a tremendous amount of hope, right? If you would think of some of the challenges that they faced originally, our challenges are sort of similar. We live in a, pluralite, a pluralistic age. And things like, they look a little different today than they did back then. Naturalism, secularism, they serve as the competing worldview of the day. They blatantly reject the divine or the supernatural altogether. There is no transcendent meaning, no meta-narrative. We are nothing more than physical matter and we'll end up a heap of ashes. Happy Mother's Day, right? <laughs> That's what the world tells us. Right? There's no real meaning. It is, it is what you make of it. It's up to you. But for us, we know that there is one true God. Right? There is one big story. Right? For us, that should bring hope. It should bring hope for us. Security and hope. Hope. It's a very different message, the message of this book, than the message of this world. Our God transcends culture and time. He provides meaning even to the most difficult part of your life. If you're to look in your life right now, the part that is the most unexplainable, the, the part of your heart that you may want nothing to do with, the God of the universe can bring meaning resolution to that part. He brings hope even to the darkest parts of this world. It's the nature of God. Secondly, we should communicate, we should pass along a love for God's content. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Those who heard Jesus speak those words would immediately recognize them from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The biblical idea of the heart covers our ideas of will and the mind. So though Jesus recalled this passage in slightly different words, he's still giving its essential meaning. True godliness means that all of who we are, as well as all we possess, are to be given to God. Knowledge will have a hard time 
knowledge of God's word, we'll have a hard time yielding obedience to God's word if our hearts have not been gripped by God's word. Okay? And so what we see as we consider this love that we're supposed to have for God, I mean, as you read this book, you, you constantly see love and obedience married together. If we want any ambition of obeying who God is, our hearts must first be gripped by a love for him. Lastly, what should we, the content that we should be communicating to the next generation, the words of God. So we have the nature of God, the love of God, and the words of God. Look at verse Six. <clears throat> and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Folks, I love this book, right? This is a beautiful book. It tells an amazing story. It's filled with complex characters, characters beautiful poetry, beautiful prose. But it's not, that is not why we cherish this book. When I was in high school, I took a class, it was a, a Bible as literature class, maybe some of you took a similar class, and, and everybody always talked about this class, it was a real popular one regardless of where you were, the town I grew up in was primarily Catholic, and virtually everybody in the school, um, they were either Catholic or they, they, they weren't, they didn't adhere to any faith at all. Um, Everybody wanted to take this class. And the reason everybody wanted to take this class was because of the teacher. She was a really, really good teacher. So I, I really got excited when I finally got the opportunity to sign up and take the class. She loved teaching it. It was absolutely evident. You would sit in there for a few minutes and you could tell she loved this class. And she didn't have an agenda. That was the best part. For me, one of the best parts. Other, her only agenda, was to expose students to the biblical text. Now... She didn't believe any of it. She didn't believe not, a, not an ounce, not a word of it to be true. She saw it simply as a wonderful piece, a historical piece of literature that was very influential in shaping our culture, specifically the Western world. But she didn't believe any of it to be true. They were great words, but they were not God's words, was her argument. Brothers and sisters, we treat this book differently. It absolutely is a beautiful book. The more you read it, the more the beauty is unveiled to you. It is absolutely a beautiful book. But we also believe that it is a revealed book. It is the revelation of God himself. And we are to pass it on to the next generation. Finally, the last point, what is the context? See this in verse 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first concern in this text is that the, the learning is supposed to take place in the home. Home according to Deuteronomy 6, is the first school. There are responsibilities that parents hold that simply can't be shopped out, right? So if you're a parent in here this morning, there, are, there is a, a duty that God has given you, an obligation, a responsibility that he has given you that you cannot contract out. The education or the spiritual formation of your children, you alone will be accountable for will be responsible for. Now, of course, parents, 
We can call upon the help of others to participate or to partner with us in the education of our children. But the ultimate responsibility belongs to you. So as we read six, we see, chapter 6, we see that there is a domestic context in view. But there's also a corporate context. We know that Jesus has redefined our understanding of the family. In Christ, we are a family. If you are here this morning and you have been adopted into the family of God, then you sit here among brothers and sisters. You belong to this family. These children are your children. Now, I think everybody here would agree, we want the greatest life for our kids, right? As you think of kids that maybe you know, that you love, that you maybe care for or parent, if you love them, you want what's best for them. And I wish this morning I could give you a three-point formula that was going to assure success and health for your children, assure their eternal destiny of salvation. I wish I could give you a three-point. I can't. I'll give you a five-point, all right? I'm just kidding. It's not, not really going to guarantee anything, but it is five points, all right? Ultimately, there's no sovereign. The work of what happens with our kids, with the life that they will go on to leave, is the sovereign and mysterious work of God himself. There's no formula which guarantees our children will be immune to the difficulties presented in this world. But there are things that are within your control. Just want to point out a few of them this morning in closing. First thing, just the word practice. Practice. Church, we must practice what we believe. We must practice what we preach. If we are a church that genuinely loves the Lord, longs for our kids to love the Lord, we must not point them in a direction that we ourselves are not heading towards. I've worked with kids long enough to know that they are no fools, right? And they are very, very sensitive to hypocrisy. We live in a world that's really sensitive to hypocrisy. And our kids are no exception. I think of Jesus saying in John chapter 13 to his disciples after he had washed their feet. He had given them an example of how they were to do one another. And what does he say? Love one another as I have loved you, so you also love one another. Folks, we must be a people who practice what we want our kids to do, right? And again, regardless if you have kids in your home or not, we want this as a church. This is a collective value that the generation behind us grows up to love and fear the Lord. And it starts by you and me embracing that truth for ourselves and living it in our life. Secondly, prayer. We must commit corporately as a people to give our time and our prayers towards our kids. Here at Parkview East, the last Sunday of every month, we designate as a prayer, a week of prayer. And so at 9 o'clock, we meet in the chapel and we pray together as a people. Corporately, we want to lift up our children. There are so many activities that this church is involved in where kids are concerned. If you think of the spot, if you think of youth ministry, think of Faith Academy, think of the kids right here Sunday morning. So much that this church is involved in. I'm telling you right now, much of that work will be in vain if we do not commit to praying for them. All right? Pray for our kids. Thirdly, prioritize their souls. 
as much as we want our kids to have success in this life. We must prioritize the condition of their soul. Grades are wonderful things, especially good grades. Athletics, sports are wonderful things, especially the good sports. Social life, friends, good things. Careers, good thing. Our priority must be their hearts. The rhythms that we establish must cultivate in them a love for the Lord above all else. And this is tricky business, right? Because ultimately, that heart is not in our hand, right? But there's so much that we can control. The environment, the cultures that we create, the rhythms, the patterns that we establish, the way specifically that we treat them, the way we speak to them, the way we teach and love them, prioritize their souls. Promote God's word. This is directly in the text. You see it all over. When you read these verses, it's as if he is wanting us to wallpaper our entire life with God's word. I don't know if you've ever taken off wallpaper. I know some of you have. It's no fun. If it's put on right, it doesn't come down easy. I took down a wallpaper recently in a really small bathroom. It took me like a day. Right? I thought I was going to be in there for two hours. It just, it was terrible. It was put on properly, right? If you think about your life, God's word should be the same thing. Everywhere you look, you want to see God's word before you. You want to see it surrounding your life. Talk about it. Pray with your children. Read God's word with them. Even the portions of scripture that you may not even understand. It's good for them to see you navigate, trying to bring understanding and clarity to God's word. Prioritize your souls. Promote God's word. Help them memorize it. Study it. Let it be what we do, what we talk about. Don't wait. There are so many. The awesome thing about our day and age is there's so many helpful tools. If you've not heard of the Read Scripture app, that's a wonderful, wonderful tool. It walks you through the Bible, provides video, so you can, you can click on the video for Deuteronomy in eight minutes. You can have a total historical understanding of what's happening in that book. It's a really, really wonderful app. Read Scripture is what it's called. Next, I would just say, um, the last one, privilege. last one is privilege. It is truly an honor to be a part of this family. If you, if you call Parkview, Parkview East home, what an honor it is to be a part of this family. What an honor it is to be a parent, to have influence over nieces and nephews, over children in your church. That's a huge, huge privilege one of the greatest joys on earth is to be able to interact with youth and to be able to influence them. Our hope is that regardless of what your relationship with kids looks like, if there's a lot of kids in your life, maybe just a few, that you would embrace this call that Moses is laying before us, that ultimately Jesus has called us to as a member of his family, that we would be people who are marked by this book and that we would prioritize passing it to the next generation. Okay? Good. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, thank you so much um, that you are uh, just such a good, good God, Lord, as we just reflect on your grace um, historically to your people, Lord. I pray that you would help us to personally be able to see it at work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us be a people who respond by giving our lives to you 
Lord. Lord, that we would consider how we can leave a legacy. Lord, a, a legacy that is marked by your word. Lord, I pray for the children in this church, the families in this church, Lord. And I pray that we, they would all be people that are marked by this book, Lord, moved by this book. Lord, help us to know and to fall in love with your revealed truth, your revealed word, and help us to apply it to our lives. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.